A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase Today. Visit Douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is Douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. It's part two of a story that you first heard a month ago. Story of what happened at Stony Point. This story is tragic and gripping, and it is a story that we can bring you because other people funded CanadaLand back in our last crowdfunding campaign one year ago. I don't have to ask you to fund Canada Land Back because this is a project that other people decided should exist for everybody to listen to. And I'm here now with the host of Canada Land Back, Karen Puglese. Hi, Karen. Hey, Jesse. This is now a permanent part of what we do. And we're so glad to be working with you and to have you and Kim um, not just telling the story but calling the shots and making good on, I think, what was the natural next step in Canada Land's practice of covering Indigenous stories is that whenever possible, uh, these stories should be told by Indigenous journalists. It's not always easy for me to hand over uh, (laughs) editorial control, but so far it's going really well. You did do very well. And I'll just say um, I do give Canada Land $7 a month. Sometimes when I go out to get my pumpkin spice latte, you know, they cost $7. I have one every day. There's one day a month that I do not have it, and that money goes to support Canada Land. This is crowdfunding month, and I am asking our listeners now to support us. One thing I want to mention is that Canada Land Back is a co-production. It's the first co-production that Canada Land has done. You're the editor-in-chief of Canada's National Observer, and you guys are crowdfunding too. We are, and I'm so glad that you led into that because one of the ways that I was able to partner and do Canada Land Back with you was because we crowdfund, and we're trying to hit $200,000 before the end of the year. So maybe people could give up two pumpkin spice lattes a month and uh, help us crowdfund over at Canada's National Observer as well. And a big part of my, you know, getting to work at Canada's National Observer was trying to build up our strength on Indigenous coverage. They're already doing a great job, and we just want to do more of it. Listen, you do not have to support Canada Land, but if you want independent journalism in Canada, you have to support someone. You have to support Canada's National Observer 
or Canada Land or, or both or both <laughs> or someone else. And it's been thrilling for me to see small newsrooms use this model and have success. It's only going to come from the news audience. It's only going to come from listeners and readers. We're going to have whatever media we decide to have in this country. We relegate this to a month of the year when we come on real strong. And I ask you continuously, and I'm asking you continuously, we're going to do a lot more reporting if you fund us. And I am an avid reader of Canada's National Observer. And uh, I think you should, if you haven't checked them out, you should check them out. They're doing wonderful work. They're worthy of your support as well. Karen, let's get to the story that you reported for us. Thank you, Jesse. Canadaland.com slash join is where you could go to help us or click the link in your show notes. Karen, how can people support Canada's National Observer? Go to nationalobserver.com, click on the donate button. Please send us money. We're really looking forward to bringing you more on Indigenous and climate change as well. If you listen to Canada Land, you probably don't mind loud men with strong opinions. Canada Land has Jesse Brown. At Canada's National Observer, we have our lead columnist, Max Fawcett. And now he has a podcast. I'm frustrated by the relentless partisanship and the refusal to discuss things in good faith. In other words, I'm maxed out. You probably are too. That's why, in this podcast, I'm going to be inviting people to talk with me about my columns and ideas, even people who want to contradict me. Maxed out. In an age of polarization, one man tried to have a reasonable conversation. Sometimes it works. That's Maxed Out, a bi-weekly podcast which is part of Podcast Tuesdays at Canada's National Observer. Find us on iTunes and wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. On May 6, 1993, six First Nations elders in their 70s decided they were going to take the land back at Stony Point in Ontario. In episode one of Canada Land Back, I shared the story of the people of Stony Point who had their land seized and occupied by the Canadian Army during the Second World War. There was a promise, no, a legal obligation to return it after World War II. No one disputed that. But like many legal obligations the federal government owes to First Nations, this too was broken. So that day, May 6, 1993, elders and their families moved back onto their land peacefully. And no one stopped them, because everyone knew the law was on their side. But that peace didn't last. And what would happen would be one of the most terrifying acts of violence to ever occur against unarmed people in Canada. All along, I've been avoiding telling you about Dudley George, but his story has to be told. I'll give you a trigger warning when the time comes. I'm Karen Pugliese, Editor-in-Chief of Canada's National Observer. Canada Land Back is a co-production from Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. The families at Stony Point had learned of a legal concept in Canadian law called the colour of right. It means if somebody honestly believes they have a right to possess certain property, they cannot be charged. A number of those who took back the land in May 1993 still live in the old army barracks to this day. 
Remember Kevin Simon? He's the third generation removed from Stony Point. He was 19 years old at the time and moved into a shack. Yeah, back in 93. Actually, I had two shacks there. There was one that was um military building I had just moved into. It said shelter on it. So how did you feel doing that? I don't know. I was proud and uh, proud to be doing something that... that basically make it known that they weren't welcome. I mean, every chance we got, we were telling the Army and whoever would listen that it was over. Their, their promise was due. They had promised that the land was going to be returned after the, after the war, and the war had been over for decades. So it was time for them to go. So it was, I don't know. I wasn't scared or anything. It was more just, it was fun. <laughs> Kevin's first spot was near to his grandfather's old homestead, a place his grandfather had always told him he would live someday. It's September 6, 2022. My producer Kim Wheeler and I hop into a car with Kevin, and he takes us on a tour of the Stony Point land. That first winter, there's that one spot that says Uncle Cliff's Cabin. Uh-huh. Right in here. Kevin is referring to Clifford George. We heard his story in episode one, the war veteran who lost his home while overseas fighting in World War II. He was uh, a war vet. He had a home when he went to fight for Canada, and when he came home, he was homeless. Him and his brother apparently spent the night in a ditch out there. He's gone now, but he was a leader then. His cabin and many of the buildings from that time in Stony Point history have fallen, and the land is growing back around them. You can kind of see a little bit of something back in there, but it's all overgrown. I think Cliffs is actually right gone, collapsed. I mean, it's been decades since somebody lived there. But yeah, there was Dudley stayed in a trailer nearby, posting a sign outside that read Dudley's Place. Yeah, that was where Dudley's. Big sign right beside the door said Deadly's Place. Everybody that drove by on the highway, they'd be able to read that. Earlier when the recorder was off, I asked Kevin if he wanted to talk about Dudley, and he said no. In fact, his words were, I don't enjoy being re-traumatized. He said it with a friendly laugh, but I took it to heart. So I don't ask about Dudley, but the stories come out anyway. Because Dudley George's life is woven deep in Stony Point's history and in the collective memory of its people, his presence is imprinted on the landscape. It's all grown over? Yeah. Actually, his brother burned down his trailer a couple years, a few years after Dudley had died. Which brother? Um, he's passed away too. Oh, okay. I think it was, I don't know why. If it was just hard to see, mm-hmm. as a reminder going by. Supporters visited. Mohawks from Kanastagi, who'd fought to protect their land in 1990. The president of the Japanese-Canadian Association. Canada had seized the property of Japanese-Canadians and forced them into internment camps using the same act, the War Measures Act, that they'd used to seize Stony Point. The Canadian Auto Workers Union built cabins and a meeting hall for the people of Stony Point. Well, yeah, there was about half a dozen little buildings that were built that first winter that was compliments to the Canadian Auto Workers Union. Oh. And the Army and the cadets yeah, let them be. 
The two groups lived side by side, each doing their best to ignore the other. Although the cadets were still using the grenade range nearby and the stony pointers sometimes felt the ground shaking. It's like 100 yards from where we were camped, the ground is just shaking. Cliff, Kevin, and Dudley stayed throughout the long, hard winter holding the space. The weather was so cold, it set records that year. In February 1994, six months after the people of Stony Point reclaimed the land, the Department of National Defense closed the cadet camp. But the military stayed, about 30 to 50 soldiers. They promised to return the land to Indian Affairs. And, like every time before, nothing happened. Six months passed. The Stony Pointers and the remaining military were getting on each other's nerves. On a Saturday afternoon in late July, the elders led about 30 men, women, and children into the parade ground in a move to expel the military and take the barracks. The elders drove into the parade grounds. Cully George drove her own car around in loops. It was peaceful except for one instant. A 15-year-old driving a school bus full of children drove the bus through a door of one of the halls. In a melee that followed, he and some of the children were pepper sprayed. The elders told the military to leave. And, surprisingly, that evening, the military personnel began packing up. Kevin Simon. They were ordered not to fight. I mean, it was pretty clear, obvious, that we weren't armed. We weren't going to kill anybody, but at the same time, um, pretty much just overrun them. Before leaving, the military trained members of Stony Point on how to maintain the buildings. They agreed to leave the stuff for the benefit of the community, kind of start the goodwill, and they wanted to start training people. Um, Dudley was actually their first one that they trained on the the gas for, um, we used to call it the kitchen. It was a fully functioning kitchen over just across from the gatehouse where you come in. As Cully tells it, the people of Stony Point finally felt like a community. We would, we would do the walking all together. We would do the cooking together. Do all the stuff around here together. If there was work to be done, yeah, we'd done that too. Well, we would be doing most of the cooking for everybody. Like I was cooking that night. When Cully says that night, she means September 6, 1995. Everything that happened at Stony Point has come to revolve around that night. And so now, it's time to talk about Dudley George. Dudley's real name was Anthony George. As a child, he loved the Dudley Do-Right cartoon about a dim-witted but cheerful Canadian Mountie from the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. How could I tell her that Dudley Do-Right of the Mounties is allergic to marigolds? Dudley Stuck is a nickname. This is his sister, Cully. He's a smart little guy. Crazy, funny, lovable, stole all my pickles. Dudley later on, he would sing this song. It's a song by Buck Owens, a country music song. Oh, they're going to put me in the movies. They're going to make a star out of me. And all I got to do is act naturally. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody, oh, shut up, Dudley. You're not going to be famous. And... (laughs) One Dead Indian, they made a movie out of that book. Guess he could see into the future, hey? I would say. How else would he know? Dudley was a happy-go-lucky kid, a jokester, but he didn't have an easy life. Shortly after the family moved to Stony Point, their house burnt down. Then when Dudley was 12, he lost his mom. Our mom died 
Um, that would have been, I think, 1971. That's when you could see a change in the family, the, the kids. The boys were getting in trouble, but Dad was going to work, hey? And it was only my sister left there to try and make them behave. Their father was still driving trucks and often on the road. Without his parents in his daily life, Dudley started getting into trouble. He eventually dropped out of high school. In 1986, Dudley's dad died from cancer. Dudley took it hard. In 1993, when Dudley joined the land back movement, he'd say it was for his dad. Being back on the land gave him purpose. He seemed to be finding himself again. There aren't many pictures of Dudley, probably because of the house fire. In the four or five that I've seen, Dudley has thick, dark, wavy brown hair that runs past his shoulders and a handlebar mustache. In one, he wears a baseball cap backwards and dark John Lennon circular sunglasses. He looks cool. Another snapped outside in someone's backyard. It looks like one of those surprise photos when you call someone's name and snap a shot just as they half turn to the camera. His lips are open, and maybe he's about to break into a smile, or maybe he's about to speak. Finally, there's one where he's cross-eyed and sticking out his tongue. All I have to do is act naturally. Kevin drives Kim and I to a secluded spot at Stony Point by a lake. There's a bare area and an old fire pit. We used to call it Camp Dudley, right at the back, the one corner of the inland lakes. When we first moved in here, this was uh, Dudley's favorite spot to get away. Is where he was living up there on the highway, it was always, it was kind of like the, the poster boy at Stony Point. This is where he would come to get away when he wanted to have, have a beer. There, just some peace and quiet. Would you camp out here? Yep. Oh. Camp Dudley. <laughs> okay. Do you want to tell us anything about him? He's a jokester. Real happy, happy-go-lucky guy. Joking about all kinds. Enjoyed life, even though he didn't really have nothing. A jokester, but not everyone loved his humor. Since May 1993, the OPP had been watching the land back movement, treating it as an active case with a name, Project Maple. They rarely had cause to interfere because the military base was federal. But when they did, Dudley was known to talk back and sharply. He'd also pulled down his trousers and mooned them more than once. Everybody going by on the highway, they read that sign at Dudley's place, so always honking. Police, they'd go by in the middle of the night, turn the sirens on, turn the spotlight on, just to wake them up. And uh, actually, let's go up into the shady spot there. That brings us to the thread of events leading to the night that Cully was telling us about. September 1995. Dudley was 38 years old. There was nothing new on the land claim. Nothing new except the elders had started to think about the old burial ground. It was now on land claimed by the province, Ipperwash Provincial Park. 
When that land was taken from the reserves, sold in the 1930s, the federal and provincial governments had promised to build a fence around the burial ground. It had long disturbed the elders that the province had not done so. The people of Stony Point spoke openly of taking the park back, even to the OPP. So the park officials weren't surprised when on Monday, September 4th, Labor Day, at 7.30 p.m., elders cut through the park fence. They'd chosen September 4th because the park was closed for the season and there were no campers. The park was empty. It was peaceful. Park officials gave Stony Pointers the keys to the park buildings and left. That night, the OPP tried to serve a trespass notice, but the people of Stony Point refused to take it. There was a tense moment between the Stony Pointers and police. One of the teenagers threw a piece of firewood at the police, and they withdrew. Over the next two days, the police increased their presence around the park. Two incidents occurred that seemed small at the time, but were important later. On Tuesday, September 5th, Stony Pointers dragged a dozen picnic tables out of the park and into a parking lot. They were worried about hostility from nearby cottagers and wanted to block access to control the area. At 10.15 p.m., three police cruisers approached the blockade. One of the cruisers pushed its way through the picnic tables, even though people were sitting on them. The Stony Pointers retaliated, throwing rocks and damaging three cruisers before retreating behind a fence. Some of the officers made racist comments, calling them wagon burners. One threatened Dudley. Come on here, Dudley. You're going to be first. The police left and returned in the morning to dismantle the picnic tables, guns drawn. This happened without further clashes. The second incident happened on September 6th. A band counselor from Kettle Point and a distant relative named Gerald George visited the park. He had been outspoken against the reclamation and had even written a letter to the local paper calling the Stony Pointers animals and jerks. Someone threw a rock at his car and dented it. George reported the incident to a nearby OPP officer. Remember those two incidents. We'll come back to them. Here's how September 6 unfolded from the point of view of Bonnie Brissett. Bonnie drove to Ipperwash Park at 10 a.m. The road leading to the park was blocked by police. After identifying herself, she was permitted to access the park area. A helicopter followed her a few kilometers down the road and into the park. She met with Dudley George and others at a picnic table near the park store. I was there with my grandkids in the truck. We had the van, Fred and I, we went down. There were police all over the place. And I said to Dudley, what do you need? And he said, we need cigarettes and we need lots of stuff to drink, pop, water. And uh, I was down there, there was Glenn and Worm and Judas. They were all down there, and Dudley says, oh, they they needed lunch meat and stuff. He, then he says, why don't you just bring everything for a picnic, and we'll have a big picnic. And I said, okay. And then I said, I'll bring the kids down with me. Bonnie returned with her husband and grandchildren. They swam in Lake Huron with some other kids. They left around 6 p.m. 
while Bonnie, her grandchildren, and about 25 others, elders, women, teenagers, picnicked and swam. The OPP were equipping a riot squad with steel batons and trying to secure military vehicles. The events that happened next are not easy to hear. This is the trigger warning I wanted to give you. At about 8.30 p.m. on September 6, the OPP mobilized the Crowd Management Team, or CMU, to arrest any land reclaimers in the parking lot. The CMU is more commonly known as the Riot Squad. 32 of the officers were ordered to dress in hard tack, body armor, head to toe, bulletproof vests, shin and elbow pads, heavy helmets, plexiglass shields, and steel batons in addition to their guns. 10 members of the Tactical Rescue Unit, or TRU, were deployed to protect the other officers. The TRU is a paramilitary unit created to respond to high-risk calls in which violence or weapons are known or expected. The TRU team had three cube vans, gun trucks, with police inscribed on the side of the vehicles. They carried submachine guns with night vision sights and camouflaged their faces with grease paint. An additional eight officers were assigned as an arrest team. There were also two canine units and two prisoner vans. Twenty-five citizens of Stony Point were in the park. Half of them were elders, women, teenagers, and children. A few minutes after 9 p.m., police closed all roads leading to Ipperwash Provincial Park. Cully had brought food down to her brother, just as police started marching in. It's cooking some deer meat, a roast, and a bunch of potatoes and veggies in a pot, and then it got done, I don't know, 10 o'clock, 10.30. <laughs> nice time for supper, eh? And I filled up a plate and I drove down there. Like, my son was down there with Dudley, and they made friends with this other guy named Bob, and I said, you guys, come here, try this, because I don't know when they had something to eat last. And they all come over and they had a little bite off the plate. I said, if you are hungry, you just can go, go up the front and eat, or I can bring you something. But then Bob says, um, no, I think you better go for help. And I looked over and I could see the cops coming. They had the riot gear on and there was just a shoulder to shoulder line of them marching this way and banging their clubs and everything. I come flying up here as fast as I could. All it was is a little tiny chevette, though. A counselor from Kettle and Stony Point, Cecil Bernard George, nicknamed Slippery, had come into the park. He hadn't been part of the land back movement. He just wanted to find out the reason for the police buildup. He walked down the parking lot to the road, carrying a four- or five-foot staff for protection and a walkie-talkie so he could communicate with the Stony Pointers. He saw riot police approaching and reported it back to the others on his walkie-talkie. He thought the police were coming to beat them. Kevin Simon was there that night. What was it like to be there? I don't know. Horrible. <laughs> yeah. I knew we were going to get take a beating, but it wasn't going to run away. It was going to make them do it. So... They tried, but they, uh, they realized that their people weren't going to be pushed away so easily and weren't scared. 
scared of a fight. As the riot squad advanced, the Stony Pointers who had been in the parking lot retreated into the park behind a fence, yelling at police that this was their land. Some threw sticks, rocks, and other items at the police. A dog got loose and ran to the police side. An officer kicked it, leading to a fight between the officer and the dog owner. Slippery George approached the officers, telling them to put their weapons away. He began yelling at the police that they should not be on Indigenous land. A voice from the police ordered, punch out. And the police advanced at a fast pace into the sandy parking lot, beating on their shields. Shield shatter is meant to intimidate protesters. This is what it sounds like. Slippery waved his staff to keep police away. Police surrounded him. Six to eight police began clubbing him. Slippery struck back. Yeah, just right out here in the middle of this parking lot, you could see three, three distinct groups that were, must have been about a dozen police with their riot gear, big batons, just whacking the crap out of somebody. The one we knew was Bernard Slippery. His sister was running up and down on this side yelling that it was her brother. They're killing him, they're killing him, you gotta do something to help him. A lot of people had already gotten clubbed pretty good. Well, actually on both sides, but they had all their uh, protection. The police continued clubbing Slippery George with steel batons. Slippery fell to the ground. One officer kicked him. Slippery passed out, and police continued to club him. Kevin and 14 other people, including Dudley, rushed forward to try to stop the beating. The first two cops I ran into, I I knocked them both down. All I had was um, two pieces of firewood. Things were that long, that big around, just like a little stick. I had one in each hand. They're standing in the line, and I seen a cousin on either side get just hammered with their batons. They're taller than me, and their step was that much closer, so they they got it, and I was spared. I was standing there looking at that and looking at those sticks, so I just fired it and threw it, hit the one, and right in his, I mean, great big old plastic helmet on, eh? You hear that little ting, and the guy fell down. An old school bus that had been used around Stony Point for a year was parked by the fence. 14-year-old Leland White was on the bus holding his dog, the dog who'd gotten kicked. Nicholas Cortell, a 16-year-old boy, climbed aboard and drove the bus through the gate towards police. He was hoping he could rescue Slippery. As he headed into the crowd, police jumped out of the way, then opened fire. The dog was hit and killed. A piece of glass shattered and hit Nicholas. He tried to maneuver the bus back into the park. As the bus reversed, someone shouted that Dudley George was shot. Here, even when they shot, open fire on. And they're standing right there, and they open fire like three, four hundred rounds all in here. And there's, there's, it's a miracle. There was only one death. And An order was given for the police to withdraw. Aside from a strained ligament, there were no injuries to police. The police put Slippery in an ambulance. He arrived at the hospital with multiple injuries, including head trauma. When he awoke, police charged him with attempted murder. 
This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Police drew guns on Nicholas's mother as she argued that he needed an ambulance. At the time, she thought he'd been shot. Nicholas was taken to the hospital. It was a piece of glass wedged in his back. He was also charged with attempted murder. The police did not call an ambulance for Dudley. Instead, his brother Pierre, sister Cully, and a friend named JT would drive Dudley to the hospital that night. Pierre's car was old. It got a flat on the way to the hospital. They pulled into a farmhouse and asked to use a phone to call an ambulance. After a while, it was clear no help was coming, so they drove on the flat tire. We were going to Strathroy Hospital, and that was like, um, I always say, 45 minutes. And didn't see no vehicles at all. And then when we turned onto the street to go down the street to the hospital where we pull in, every street that was intersecting with that one, there was cops sitting there, you know, like a TV movie, pointed out. And then the next street, they were there too. And then the next street, and then Pierre said, what do we do? I said, just keep going. That's all we can do. So we pulled into emergency and we stopped and the guy came out. I said, get a stretcher. And he stands there. And I got really mad. I said, get a fucking stretcher. The police told Cully she and Pierre were under arrest for attempted murder. They cuffed her and pushed her to the ground. And then I could see then there was a cop there. He says, okay. But then the next thing you know, they're taking me down. And they put me through a cedar bush, eh? Right on top of one. I got a piece of cedar caught in my shirt. I didn't know it. Not until they took us to the jail. And 
they took me in to jail cell and I went walking in and turned around, sat on the bunk, and then I could see that cedar branch, little weeny one. Cedar is a sacred medicine. I looked up at the cop. I didn't want to look down at it because he might have seen what I was looking at and would take it away. But to me, that was like, he left. I got it, and I thought, well, let's create or sign that. Everything's going to be okay, even if it don't look like it's okay right now. Dudley was not okay. The police did not tell Cully or Pierre that Dudley died that night. But Cully says she had a feeling. Knew he had died. I knew him myself, but Pierre didn't or anything, you know. You know how some people know what's going to happen and all that. And, um, but I didn't know definitely. Back at the park, when the news reached the crowd that Dudley was dead, a group set the park store on fire. Although people who belonged to Kettle Point had not supported the reclamation before, that night, hundreds of supporters marched down the highway to the park. The next day, the OPP issued a news release, making the following claims. A private citizen's car had been attacked by baseball bats, causing the police to send in a crowd management team. Police were leaving the area when a school bus and a full-size vehicle drove at police and fired guns at them. None of these things were true. I want to remind you now of a few things I asked you to remember. Remember the picnic incident, where the police tore down the barricade and some stony pointers threw rocks at them? That was one of the few physical altercations with police, and none of the stony pointers were armed. Remember the next day? Bonnie Brissett was visiting the park with her grandkids when she took them swimming, and she was followed by a helicopter she drove into the park. That was not an isolated incident. The police were flying low over the park for days. They also, unknown to Stony Pointers, had video surveillance cameras in the park. At no point did police have any record of seeing guns in the park. Only one officer claimed to see a weapon. Officer Ken Dean, the man who shot and killed Dudley George. Officer Dean said Dudley was carrying a gun. No one else saw it, not even the officer standing beside Dean. In 1997, a trial judge found Ken Dean, the officer who killed Dudley George, guilty of criminal negligence, concluding Dean's story about seeing the gun was a cover-up. Dean's sentence? Two years less a day to be served in the community, 180 hours of community service. Dean died in a car accident in 2006. Almost 10 years after the killing of Dudley George, an inquiry was finally called asking why the police moved in and opened fire on unarmed men, women and children that dark September night. Donald Worm is a Cree lawyer from Kuwakatoos First Nation in Saskatchewan. He was the commission lawyer. I asked him about the police news release. Well, I can't say that it was entirely accurate. There were certain, there, there were elements of that particular press release that were simply non-factual. Now, it must be made clear that there was absolutely no evidence of any weaponry in the hands of the Stony Pointers or any of the protesters at Ipperwash Provincial Park, either on that night or on any occasion previous. So why did the police open fire that night? Was it racism? 
Well, I think it's undeniable that in this country, race underpins virtually every social interaction. Virtually every social interaction. Uh, I don't think that this is any secret. I don't think it's. I don't think it's deniable. No, there's no one down there. This big fat fuck Indian. Camera's rolling. Yeah. That tape, courtesy of APTN, was released during the inquiry. The voices you are hearing are police. As part of standard procedure, they recorded themselves. They never thought these tapes would be heard by anyone outside the force. We had this plan, you know, we thought if we could get five or six cases of uh, Lapatch 50, we could bait them. Yeah. Then we could have this big net at a pit. <laughs> Creative thinking. Yeah. Works in the south with watermelon. OPP officers also made souvenir pins with Ken Dean's badge number. Yes, Ken Dean, who shot and killed Dudley. These circulated for years after Dudley's death. So did specially designed T-shirts with police logos and a broken arrow, meant to be mementos for officers who'd been at Ipperwash that night. But there's something more. Something I haven't told you about the two days before the police attack. Something no one knew until the inquiry. At least, no one outside the top levels of police and government. Here is Donald Worm. There were many pains taken to, to deny that political pressure was the motivation for the attack that night. However, it seems inexplicable that an ERT emergency response team would move in on unarmed protesters at 11.55 in the middle of the night uh, in this particular circumstance, particularly if they believed that there were weapons among the protesters. Why in heaven's name would they march into such a circumstance. They were driven by, by other motivations. This much is clear. Other motivations. What Donald is talking about is political interference. Politicians and police are supposed to be separate. Politicians are not supposed to have the power to direct police in a democracy. They're not supposed to be able to point at a person and order police to arrest them. But in those two days, September 5th and 6th, there were meetings between the then-premier, Michael Harris's political staff, ministers, and bureaucrats. The premier's staff made it clear that Harris did not see the reclamation as an Indigenous claim, but as a criminal matter. The premier was not interested in negotiations and was impatient for police to move in. These messages were leaked and communicated to the officers in charge of the operation. Then... Just before noon on September 6, the day that police moved in, a meeting was called in a small room next to the Premier's office. Premier Harris, several ministers, and their staff were present. We found uh, at the commission, and there was a finding of, of the commission, that in fact the language that was used accelerated the event in question. Which language? Well, the language of the Premier language that was highly inflammatory, that was, well, it was racist. When he said, according to his attorney general, Charles Harnick, he said, I want the fucking Indians out of the park. Back at Stony Point in the aftermath of the raid, police laid charges against the 24 people, men, women, and children, who survived the night of September 6th. 
Most of those charges were later dropped. It would not be until 13 years after the night Dudley was killed, after all the court cases, after the inquiry, that a final settlement agreement on the return of the land was announced. That was in 2016, but the citizens of Stony Point still do not have their land back. The federal government says there are unexploded ordinances and environmental toxins that need to be cleaned up. There's no timeline for the cleanup. For now, Pierre, Dudley's brother, lives in temporary housing the government built. It's much like a mobile home. Inside, Pierre's wall is covered with pictures, many blown-up news items documenting the long fight to get the land back. A picture of a protest. See me, I'm slowly putting all my pictures back up on the wall. Is that, that's you? That black-white one? Yeah. Yeah, I'm coming out of the Supreme Court in Ontario, uh, Ottawa. That's when uh, that cop who shot Dudley was trying to get his conviction overturned. A picture of him and Dudley. Pierre designed a memorial for Dudley. It's a black stone that looks like a gravestone placed where Dudley fell, although Dudley is not buried at that spot. Kevin takes us there. We're here on September 6, 2022 exactly 27 years after Dudley's death. So is there anything, because of the anniversary, is there anything special happening at the memorial today? Or mm. Like we're not interrupting anything, right? Um, people do their own thing. Um. The epitaph reads, in memory of Dudley George, who made the supreme sacrifice, September 6, 1995, in respect of the ancestors. G'day, g'day. Good morning, guys. Beauty day out, eh? Hey, Karen. Hi. This Hi. I'm Karen. Hi, Karen. I'm Kim. Hi, Kim. Oh. We're journalists. We're down making a recording. Oh. Just so you know, because I'm taping, do you want me to turn it off or? No, it's okay. I'll just come down and uh, just get a smudge. This is my uncle, by the way. <laughs> one of my uncles. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to meet Hi. you. I wasn't down here that night, but but Dudley was, I grew up with Dudley, right? He was a couple of years older than me. So he would be, what, pushing Dudley if he's still alive? He'd be 64-ish? Oh, uh, 27 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Long time. Anyways, I'm just going to smudge if you guys want to come watch or join in. So what's your name, Uncle? My name is Moon. Uncle Moon? Yes. We meet Kevin's uncle. He's carrying a box. In it's sage, a sacred medicine that's burned and used to cleanse the spirit before prayer. He walks us from the Blackstone Memorial to an arbor topped with cedar boughs. Cedar is another sacred medicine. People stop to pray and offer respects here. The arbor was in disrepair. I had to I put a... I put a bow up, and I made the cross bows. And from the four, from the four cedar trees, there was just enough cedar boughs to put up top. And I restrung it up, right? Mm -hmm. There was this one was broken. It looks like there's some down here. I always give thanks to Deli down here too, eh? Chimaglitch, Chimaglitch Deli. 
Many at Stony Point will say that Dudley died for this land. He didn't mean to. He didn't choose to. But his death is so interwoven into the story of the community that mourning the loss of Dudley is synonymous with mourning the loss of the land, the community, and the longing to one day finally have it back. Here is Elder Bonnie Brissett. So did, is that what I fought for? Is that what all the people is, all the other people that's now in the spirit world, is that what they fought for? We fought for to be able to go home. And now life is not good for anybody down there. And you, I'll never say enough for Cully, Pierre, Glenn, Kevin, Worm's son, all those people that have never been recognized as warriors. For posterity. <laughs> all righty, Buju. Um, like to welcome everybody to our big day here, release of a long talked about book. About the book launch for our long struggle for home, home was held um, just inside the gates of the old army base, Kevin, under a white tent on a windy October weekend. The community came out, there was coffee, egg salad sandwiches, a sacred fire where we could offer tobacco. Kevin and Cully called it a moment of healing, a chance to tell their story in their own words. Hope everybody wants to buy a book and read it and enjoy. I hope it's a kind of a start of a healing process, I guess. Some of the reconciliation. Yep. Yeah, it's not just for our our nation, but all of Canadian and American, North American people. We are in the treaty, getting back to the treaty rights, so it's all about the sharing of this land. We never... There's still laughter and good humor here, despite everything. And there's hope and longing. It was a reserve before, and I want it to be a full reserve up and running for its own people now. Again and make it the place that it could have been if they had been allowed to stay here. Because the people up here, they would all work. This is Cully's daughter, Claudette, nicknamed Joby. I'm here because of what my mom went through. I'm here for what uh, my brother went through. Even the other warriors that are still alive here with us today, they have nightmares of what happened to them that night. Um, they're traumatized from police. You know, that's not, it, it wasn't for nothing. That's why I raised my kids here. And now there's a fourth generation. This is Cully's granddaughter, Dudley's great-niece, Alabama Brissette. And Alabama doesn't know it, but she's why I came here to Stony Point, to meet someone like her, someone born bearing the weight of all that history, to hear her words. Um, it's like my life, really. I grew up here. My, I was born in 98, so I never really got to meet my Uncle Dudley. But my entire life, that's really, you know, hearing stories of him and hearing how my grandma, my uncles, and my whole community struggled to, to just live, really. There is so much hurt and pain still, but even with truth and reconciliation, that's, you know, we're starting to heal from it and starting to understand why we're, you know, what happened to our people and how, you know, the government did do this to us. And this is just another 
another form of genocide to our people, right? Just right across Canada. And yeah, but this is where my heart is. Reconciliation. Will it ever come to Stony Point and how? It's been 80 years since the land was taken. Back to Donald Worm. He and I are that middle generation, in between the elders who crafted reconciliation and Alabama, who is burdened with somehow executing that vision. What does he think? I think that we have young Indigenous people who are highly motivated, highly educated, who will continue this struggle, and they will continue to make significant gains in the future. They will do it by logic. They will do it using the laws. And if they continue to be oppressed and shut out by the legal system and by civil society, then there is no way that they will simply give up and walk away. That is not in their, in their blood. And we have seen time and time again examples of this kind of courage and, and dedication to the, the principles of who we are as Indigenous people. When Don says if they continue to be oppressed and shut out, there's no way that they will simply give up and walk away. That's not in their blood. That's what I think, too. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission defined reconciliation as a remaking of Canada and all its institutions. I do think that's going to happen. But what if reconciliation's not a warm hug? What if it comes instead as an army of frustrated youth raising their fists in the air. Sooner or later, Canada is going to hit the last generation they can bargain with. And we have seen time and time again examples of this kind of courage and, and dedication to the, the principles of who we are as Indigenous people. It's not a threat. And, you know, I'm an officer of the court. I have a duty to make the system better. And it cannot be better if it's only better for some people. It has to include Indigenous people. There's a saying in Indigenous communities, we get the grandchildren we deserve. We've raised this generation together, Canada, your people and mine. What kind of grandchildren have we made? I wanted to be a part of a movement, uh, whether to be a political activist or a fisheries officer. Why did you help us? Never forget the ones who stayed here over the past 20 years and what they endured. The sadness, the harassment, <laughs> and sickness. That's the next episode of Canada Land Back. Canada Land Back is hosted by Karen Pugliese, that's me. This episode was produced by Karen Pugliese and Kim Wheeler. Canada Land Back is a co-production between Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. Too many problems, but too many to say. Hey, you got something to say. You got too many problems, but
You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.